Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the View from the Nest podcast. I'm Dark Forest Capital and I'm joined by my fellow contributor at the co-op AG. As always we're going to take you through the latest and greatest happenings within the DAO uh, and maybe we'll even find some time at the end to cover the wider crypto space. So AG, uh, I hear that you've moved location again in the world to avoid the tax man. How's that working out for you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not that I'm running away from taxes. I, I think I've just generally decided that I'm not going to pay them. Um, but yeah, I did I did move from Egypt to Greece and uh, got to say it's uh, it's been a welcome change so far. Uh, quite enjoying uh, Athens, like really cool place. Um, not what I expected at all, but really having a good time so far. And uh you know, one of the perks is internet actually works. So um, makes it a bit easier to kind of do this uh, remote work sort of thing. Oh, that's great to hear. Uh, it's very bold of you to announce on a podcast that you're not going to pay tax though. So uh, good luck with that. I'll, I'll be keen to see how it works out for you. Is there much of a crypto scene in, in Greece? Uh, I don't think so. Like I posted on Twitter like just asking for recommendations if anyone is around I posted in like Greek channels at like balancer uniswap badger maybe a couple couple of uh, protocol discords and uh, crickets nothing so far okay that's interesting um I hadn't actually spotted a Greek channel in any of the discords that I'm in so uh, yeah well done for for rooting those out in the first place but Mm. I'll keep an eye out, and uh, yeah, if I spot any ge- uh, Greek contributors, then I'll, I'll point them in your direction. There should be some at uh, Olympus, I would think, <laughs> given given the the memes. Yeah, that would make sense. Perhaps Zeus himself is Greek. I, I've never asked. All right, um, should we get on with it then? If if that's uh, if that's everything for for doxing you this week, I think that's that's a good <laughs> point to, to move on. Cool. Um, yeah, the first thing I wrote about in the, the newsletter this week was the bed index finally passing through DG2. This one had been quiet for a few weeks after, uh, I, I think I talked about it quite a bit a month or two ago as it was kind of moving through the process. Um, and now it's, you know, it's finally out there, voted on, passed the vote, like Bob's your uncle. So it's a case of like getting this thing ready for launch now. Um some interesting things changed between our decision gate one vote and decision gate two, and <clears throat> namely like the bankless DAO forming. So rather than obviously just the superstars, um, David and, and Ryan running the show, and obviously they've got a load of uh, team members in the background, they've now sort of decentralized their organization. Uh, they formed like a limited liability company, which deals with the media side of things, I believe. Uh, and then the, the DAO, which is forming around um, other things that can be done. For example, this partnership with us at Index Co-op, uh, where the, the streaming fees from this product will actually accrue to the DAO. So that the community there will be um, deciding what to do with those fees, reinvesting them, growing uh, growing the bankless community, I guess. Um, so th- that's really cool. I think like we're already at the forefront of so much being in DeFi and, and being contributors to a decentralized org but now the fact that we're working in partnership with another decentralized organization like that's pretty rare um, and it's going to be interesting and quite fun to sort of figure out the dynamics of that and, and see where it takes us what do you think about it yeah i think it's uh you know it's definitely a very different conversation now compared to the one we had a couple months ago when the product was originally proposed I think that like the power of a community-driven organization is uh, sort of hard to 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 overstate. I think David and Ryan obviously had uh, quite a big reach, but for me, it's quite exciting to see what the community can do. Obviously, you know the Bankless DAO community is financially invested, kind of in the success of um the product so instead of kind of just having um david and ryan and the team behind them 
sort of marketing and promoting this product, uh, you now have the entire DAO, right? So I think that improves, I think it improves like the ability to market the product and, and to sort of make a lot of noise about it and try to promote it through different channels and, and so on. What is interesting to me, and I think what makes kind of this product quite well suited to a DAO to DAO collaboration is the simplicity of it and uh, kind of the limited scope for changes to the methodology. So I think that um, that makes this whole uh, partnership more around kind of marketing and distribution, which is what I think both um, both DAOs do quite well. And uh, I think another interesting component is that the, the Bankless DAO now has a token as well. So in terms of uh, potential incentives, uh, we now have sort of two tokens that we can incentivize with. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's definitely an interesting experiment. I, I, I'm, I'm still not 100% sold on the product and like it's... Um, appeal within the DeFi ecosystem, right? I think it's an awesome retail uh, focused product, uh, but we need centralized listings in my mind to get this product to retail, right? Like there needs to be a very simple distribution. Um, and maybe like we could start with um, some wallet partnerships, Arjun, Dharma, and so on that are very retail friendly um, and kind of then slowly work our way up to uh, some of the larger centralized exchanges. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you there. I think there's a bit of a juxtaposition between um, the fact that we're launching it as a as a group that's deep within DeFi, but actually it's a very retail-focused product. So I think we'll just have to push on those relationships with centralized exchanges, um, possibly institutions you know ways that we can offer this to to people who are not so far down the rabbit hole um i wanted to go back on to the subject of um, organizations and, and working for decentralized orgs and ask you a very specific question ag what do you think makes index co-op different from other organizations i don't think that was in the newsletter man go on <laughs> uh you're putting me on the spot here i am yeah <laughs> yeah I'll tell you why in a minute. <laughs> I, I certainly think that the the professionalism and the structure is uh, very different. And and you know, uh, keep in mind that my opinion is based solely on kind of contributing to Index Corp, right? Like I've obviously hung around a bunch of discords, but I haven't actually contributed elsewhere. So my so this is kind of like based on what I read and what I hear uh, more than anything else. And and yeah, my perception is that Indexcope is uh, much more organized and uh, much more professional in the way we uh, conduct ourselves in the way we do uh, business. And, and I think that's sort of, that's been my my impression as well. And that's what, kind of keeps me around like I, I think it would be quite challenging um, for me personally to kind of contribute to a DAO that is more kind of hectic and has less structure I think there is like a very interesting balance with uh, decentralized orgs between completely flat and kind of hierarchical slash structural um, and, and I think for me personally, the co-op is on the right side of that balance. That was a very good answer. And I like the amount of flattery that you sprinkled throughout. And uh, that question comes from the Index Co-op internship program post on the forum. And uh, I wanted to use that as a lead into the, to the next subject. And you can probably tell that I'm smiling from ear to ear because I love to put you on the spot like that. But uh, I think that was a very good answer. And um, yeah, you're, you're welcome to do an internship with us this summer if you would like, AG. I think, I think that's perfectly acceptable. Uh, yeah, I think uh, 
if you're an intern, right, you're supposed to be kind of allocated, I don't know if that's the right word, but allocated to a specific working group and, and working group lead. So if I do do an internship, I would certainly love to learn um, from you, Paul. That sounds amazing. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot that I can teach you. So you'd be welcome to stick around <laughs> and uh, yeah, help me help me with my contributions. So yeah, I, I think overall this this program is is fantastic. I, I'm excited to see it take shape. Um, it'll be yeah, it'll be interesting to figure out like which working groups actually have the capacity to take somebody on, because there might be a fair amount of like bringing them up to speed. Um, but at the same time, I've been talking to to David in the background a little bit about this because, like I say, I'm I'm excited. I think. That the co-op should be willing to stump up some some funds for it to see how it goes, and I think interns really should be rewarded uh, in the same way that that everybody else is. Maybe with a floor like that says, you know, the, here's the basic that we're going to give you. But you know, if they do something impactful um, and they're putting a lot of time and effort into stuff, then yeah, they they should you know get that that experience of what it's like to to contribute and, and work within an environment like this. So. Uh, yeah, keen to see how it evolves. Um, I personally just started mentoring actually at the She Two Five Six organization. So, um, like anything that gives back to or, or looks out for like new talent in the space, I'm I'm all for. So, uh, yeah, happy to see this go forward. I think. How do you, how do you see it working? In terms of like, especially with working group leads that are not full-time. Um, I think that to sort of take someone on for six weeks and really bring them up to speed and really get them uh, contributing does require quite a, quite a bit of time. So like in your mind, can it be done by someone other than the working group lead? Or yeah, like how do you see it sort of plan out how do you see it being structured yeah absolutely I, I think the way that we work as a DAO anyways tends to be that the community coalesces around um, I don't want to say like weaknesses but gaps uh, that, that's how most contributors kind of turn up and and get more involved anyway as they spot something that they're able to do uh, and that maybe we're slacking on um, they pick it up they run with it Hopefully they do a good job. Everybody gives them a round of applause on the forum, and that kind of kicks off the process of like somebody becoming a, a full-time contributor, I, I would say. So I think there's kind of two things that we can do here, and one of them is in the interview process up front where we make sure that there's a basic level of understanding so that you know it's not five weeks of getting somebody up to speed with how everything works and then a week of, okay, can you do this for us now? Like we need somebody who can hit the ground running, and I think a lot of the work that we that we do kind of falls into um, stuff that's not so specialised. Like we we do have general generalists within the co-op, so I think there's definitely room for people who are at college or or university level of education. Like there's still plenty of stuff for them to do. Um, and then the second thing is is like I say, the community tends to organically like reorganize itself to accept and um, uplift other members, I think, uh, certainly from what I've seen, like people get stuck in and, and help each other out. So I don't see it as being like I've seen it at my previous um, employment where somebody comes in and they're sat next to you and like you have to find the time to you know create documents for them to read through and then they get up to speed and then they can do the next thing and the next thing. I think this can be a bit more flexible um, and I don't see it being too much of a problem to be honest. And then the benefit of all of this is that hopefully, you know, we get somebody who's a passionate index co-op member for life potentially out of it uh, and possibly can even bring skills that we don't currently have. So uh, yeah, I think the upside is, is definitely worth it in this case. Can you tell me the difference between like new joiners right like just people who come in through the intros or other channels and an intern 
is it just like that an intern is supposed to be out of college and obviously we don't like we don't think about that when we have new joiners or, or whatnot is that is that the only difference no i mean it doesn't even have to be somebody out of college i guess that's just my own like bias towards it but that there's no reason that this can't be for anybody who has joined the discord maybe felt like a little bit overwhelmed by um, what it takes to like make that leap to full-time well not full-time but to, to contribution um, I think it's maybe just a structured program around pulling some of those people out of the woodwork and getting them involved because it is a very different way of working even people that you and I work alongside now um, I've, I've had one-to-ones with them you know when they've joined and, and sort of said like you, you can't just sit there and wait to be told what to do like you've got xyz skills we've got xyz problems like put those two things together and, and just go and get stuck in um, but still not everybody can do that not everybody feels comfortable doing that so i think this is just a great way that we can you know we can open it up to everybody um, and have you know a bit of a, a catalyst around bringing people on board who maybe um, wouldn't have otherwise thought about it does that make sense yeah, uh, partially. I think it's. Uh, I think, I think with any such program, it really comes down to execution. Um, I think we can we can sit here and come up with a lot of um, brilliant ideas, um, but it's really all about how we execute them. Um, and, and I think, in my mind, at least, this is is one of those ideas like it, it's a great initiative um, but it can be done um, in a way that's very beneficial for us and uh, at the same time it can be done in a way that doesn't add much value to the coop or to the person uh, who is put in that to in, in that role i guess yeah i think that's a fair point um but a lot of the stuff that we're doing even the stuff that you and i have recently put forward around um, MVI's growth budget like there's stuff in there that we have no idea how it's going to turn out we've got a, a good like guess um, we can put some numbers around this stuff we can look at you know similar examples but at the end of the day we're we're all sort of treading new ground here to an extent so um, yeah I, I, I counter that and say that this is something that you know people have have done for a long time and it's not that experimental like we can i'm sure we can figure it out and i'm sure we can make it worthwhile uh for the co-op and and for the uh applicants as well that's where i'm at with it yeah i will uh i'll trust your judgment on that let's let's put it that way <laughs> yeah i guess we've kind of avoided um being listed as people that might get uh interns assigned to us so far so uh Maybe it's a case of one of those things where it's funny when it's not happening to you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. But uh, yeah, I'm keen. It's all right. I'll uh, I'll put a comment on the forum that you really want a personal intern. <laughs> so um, just so you get one. Yeah, because uh, because my current um, co-contributor is slacking. That, that's what we can how we can justify it. I'd say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's okay if, if that's if that's how you want to go that's uh that's all good <laughs> yeah i uh retract that statement <laughs> right let's move on before i get myself into too much trouble with you um the smart pool has returned this time under the the leadership of matthew graham and the treasury working group um something that i was like trying to form up months and months ago. I thought it was a great idea. And now we've actually done something in the form of a strategic sale where we can make use of uh, a, a balancer pool, like a balancer smart pool. So there's some figures around it. Um, basically, we start off with about $2.5 million worth of ETH, and then you can use the function of the pool to change the weights over time. So you're effectively... Um, selling index for ETH to rebalance it to a different set of weights. So we're targeting 70-30 at, at the end of it when it's all said and done, which would put us at 17.5 million index and $7.5 million worth of ETH. Um, and the reason that 
this is interesting is because obviously it gives us the trading fees. Um, it's like rebalanced by the market rather than ourselves, uh, which means that we're over time we're like compounding our gains because every time a trade is made across the pool, a small amount is deposited as a trading fee. Um, it also, when you compare it against the 50/50s of Sushi Swap and Uniswap, excuse me, with the after it's rebalanced, means that you actually have a a lot more depth, effectively, and you can do a larger trade for the same amount of slippage. So we're talking like with with a, I think Matt's got 80/20 listed here. You can do a 26.7 ETH trade at 1%, whereas in v2 uniswap that would be two ETH. does that seem right oh that's because we've got a, a much smaller pool there um so in sushi swap that would be 11.1 ETH. so basically what you're saying here is that because the amount of ETH that we are going to have is is limited the best thing that we can do is chuck an extra load of index in alongside it so whereas if we were doing just 50 50 you know we'd only put in two and a half mil of ETH, and then we can only put in two and a half mil of index whereas if you do this, aim for this 70-30 config and you put in two and a half and you sell up to that, then you basically give yourself a much larger pool for the same amount of starting ETH, which is effectively treating the index that we have as like free to us, um, which again, it, it is because in this pool, to start with at least, we'll be the only liquidity provider and it's set up like that, like that for a reason because then that allows us to switch on and off all of the configurables that they have, like the ability to pause um, trading entirely or the ability to, to change the um, swap fees. So we, we have some tunables around it. And so that means that in, if in a year's time we want to pull it all back out, um, we can do. And it's all, you know, it's all theirs and we, we can control it during that time. So, um, yeah, I'm, another thing that I'm excited for is actually seeing this thing go live because it's, it's been kicking around in the forums for a long time at this point. Yeah, it, it's uh, it definitely came a long way. I think, like you, you covered a lot of detail there. For me, what's I think is another really important uh, part of it that that you haven't mentioned is that we will effectively become the biggest source of liquidity on the market right like so this pool is going to become the biggest pool for index liquidity um so there, there are a couple of things there i think one is we hope that most of the volume will actually go through this pool um uh, both like individual like retail volume but also volume through aggregators which hopefully will kind of give us a decent return in terms of fees and uh, also hopefully that as the volume picks up the amount of index that we're selling on a daily basis through the rebalancing function uh, becomes a smaller and smaller percentage of the overall uh, volume so i think at the moment that uh, i think we're selling about fifty-five thousand per day which is kind of five percent or so of the daily trading volume and uh, I, I think matt and the treasury working group thought that that's kind of the appropriate amount that's something that the market can handle that that's something that we can do without uh distorting kind of the uh the market so as volume picks up hopefully that becomes you know two percent three percent of the daily volume um and you know it's just a, another step in diversifying our treasury i think at the end of this exercise we should have what about extra five million uh, of eth in the treasury couple that with uh, somewhere around eight eight and a half million of uh, usdc from from the private sale and uh, that, that's pretty decent yeah it's a good bit of diversification and uh, it's been a long time coming like you said so um yeah, it's a good one. I think there's been some nosing around like the, the V2 upgrades for Balancer as well. And the idea is that when we can in the future, once that's got a bit of uh, time under its belt, we can look at making the underlying assets productive and, and generating more yield as well. So um, taking advantage of 
those upgrades over at Balancer, which which would be really good for for us. Cool. So moving on, uh, I made mention quickly at the end here about another allocation or potential allocation to DPI, and this is really exciting for me to see, and um, like something that's just coming on stream really in, in crypto, which is like treasury management as a service. I think it would be a, a disservice to Yam to to say that it's brand new because obviously they've kind of formed a DAO around that idea, um, and with their Sushi House proposal. Like that was the first major proposal that that I've certainly seen. Um, it was like it was about fifteen million dollars in total. Uh, I don't know where it's got to now, actually, but five million of that was supposed to be DPI. But I think Sushi like put the put the thing on hold for the time being. Anyway, obviously there's this um, this group forming uh, called Llama, and it's got Shreyas who like jumped into the index car a while back, actually after he wrote an article uh, where he talked about the kind of stuff that we were looking at and, and our diversification plans. So um, me and Matt both reached out to him and said, like, come and have a chat with us. And, and from there, I think the the relationship's like really grown. And now seeing what those guys are, are doing with Llama and coming up with ideas and like joining these different protocols together and making sure that um, their treasuries are like well allocated, well diversified. Yeah, I think it's really cool to see and something that we should be looking to do at Index Co-op. Like we're providing these products that are giving, you know, risk adjusted returns um, in the form of DPI, MBI and the as of yet to be launched um, stable yield index. Like these kind of things, we should be selling them to other people's or other DAOs treasuries because they just make total sense to be in there. Um, so, yeah, I thought I'd make mention of it. It's only 25K allocation, but... It's better than a kick in the teeth, and it, it's kind of perpetuating that that narrative that these are the kind of products that you should be holding if you're a, a, a project in the crypto space. Yeah, I think uh, it's good to see. I think uh, Perpetual actually also bought some DPI as part of the um, partnership or yeah partnership that that we had around the trading competition that uh, Index sponsored. I it escapes me how much that was. But definitely was a purchase there, and uh, yeah, I think now that you you sort of said we talked about um, selling directly to DAOs, right? Like several months ago, as part of the BD effort. But it, I just realized that we haven't done any of that. So, you know, maybe that's uh, another vertical under under BD. That um, that that we should pursue. I'm sure, kind of Simon and the and the BD guys have thoughts on this and uh, probably have it kind of on their roadmap. Uh, but yeah, it makes uh, it makes total sense. Yeah, somebody needs to page page Big Sky, get him on the get him on the blower and tell him that you know this this should be something that we should be doing. I think with the working group experiments coming up for renewal at the end of this month that's uh it's something that i've kind of been like trying to reiterate to the bd team is that we should be like deciding what our focus is rather than the guys have got a lot of energy they've been going out there they've been smashing the partnerships but some of them are not as high impact and i think redirecting that energy to, to some like really high impact um partners I, I think that's the way to go and it sounds like maybe there's something that we can do here i mean if we've got groups like Llama, Yam, whoever it might be out there, like they they can push maybe the expertise on how to set these things up. But if they're pushing our products, then that's a good thing for us. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a number of different ways that we can do it, a number of different options, but something that we should be focusing on overall, I would say. Absolutely. I, I, I'm curious to see where the treasure diversification efforts in the space get to before we have like a an extended period of down market um, um i think like everyone is talking about diversification but as as we've learned right it just takes time it takes quite a bit of time to execute on some of these initiatives i think if the team is more centralized it's probably easier um but yeah i, I i'm just 
really curious to see where the space ends up. And like, I think it's going to be pretty clear who the winners and the losers are. And uh, I still think that majority of projects in the space are way behind the curve on the issue of treasury uh, diversification. And uh, yeah, it'd be just... Uh, it was just interesting. Quite curious about that. I wonder if that maybe um, one of the lesser spoken about benefits of having a group like Yam put forward a, a Dow House proposal or or Lama, whoever it might be, if they approach a community um, externally and say like, "Here's what we do. Here's what we're thinking for you guys. Can we put this proposal forward?" it can help to speed that process up massively because if you were trying to do it from within a community, you might find that everybody's got an opinion. And like you say, without a central authority to kind of make the decision and push it forward, you can get stuck in a bit of back and forth. And so the same thing is true. If you, you like almost hire an outside expert, these guys are the experts at this. They come in and they say, here are your allocations, um, base it on like how much risk you want to take, you've got option one two three and then the community votes on it and you move it forward like there's there's no question then around like why is it why is so and so saying here's what we should do why aren't we you know doing x y z yield farming like a thousand apy whatever now you don't need to have those conversations because somebody just basically lays down the law says look we've done this work before here are the numbers here are your options you guys choose it like it gives the community a bit of a say in, in where to go, and then they move forward. I think that's a that's a huge benefit of doing it that way, basically. Yeah, yeah, I think it definitely helps. Um, I think another interesting conversation, right, is about liquidity of uh, a lot of these tokens. So obviously, um, projects treasury is going to be uh, mostly in that particular project's token, and and so. If that token has limited liquidity, there are very few things you can do to actually diversify the treasury. And that's where um, I think Uniswap v3 is interesting because, for example, uh, let's say after we run the smart um, bouncer smart pool, right, we'll have extra 5 million of ETH, which uh, should bring our sort of total um, total amount of ETH in the treasury to about 7.5 million. And so if we took that, paired it with ETH and provided 15 million into a 50-50 um, uni v3 pool, right? Um, that would support like literally trades of 150 to 200K with like less than 50 basis, basis points of slippage. Sorry, not slippage, price impact. So like... You know, that makes it easy then for us to sell into that pool. And that's like another interesting conversation about as a project, do you want to be selling your own token um, on the market? And like, how do you communicate that to the market and, and so on? But I think kind of token liquidity is definitely one of um, major consideration when it comes to diversifying the treasury. Yep, very valid point. And uh, obviously, you've thought about that before, actually. Um, yeah, okay. Let's have a look outside of uh, Index Corp for a bit then. Um, I've certainly been seeing a lot of news around Bitcoin with uh, El Salvador and what they're up to over there. Um, I don't know if you had anything particular you wanted to, to touch on, AG, but otherwise we can talk a bit about volcano mining of Bitcoin, if you want. I don't I don't really I don't really have a strong view on volcano mining. I think it still somewhat baffles me why you'd use Bitcoin and not like a stable coin for for a currency, like sovereign currency. And uh yeah, I think we can talk about how do you like I don't necessarily see any countries adopting ETH as uh, as as their secondary currency. So I wonder, because we talk about how ETH can probably 
be better than Bitcoin in in just about every area, including as a store of value after AIP fifteen fifty nine and the um, and the merge. But maybe this is one thing where Bitcoin is actually better positioned, and ETH is unlikely to sort of uh, break into that that area. Um, unlikely to break through that moat. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I'll preface this by saying that uh, I've been called out on my controversial opinions from last time we spoke about ETH versus Bitcoin on the podcast. Um, but I spent the weekend with a group of guys that I'm friends with and have been since university who have never really been interested in, in crypto but now are asking like all the right questions. Um, and I literally like lost my voice. I sp- was talking so much. Um, who'd, have, who'd have thought it? And uh, yeah, I'd say you hit the nail on the head there, like talking all of that stuff through and and testing my own understanding of it and testing my own answers and convictions as to why I think the way that I do about Ethereum. I think there's a mismatch in narratives. So we still call them cryptocurrencies. And as you say, El Salvador adopting Bitcoin as a legal tender, like as a currency, it doesn't really make any sense because it is still so volatile. And the reason that I think Ethereum has a bit of a chance of like overtaking Bitcoin comes down to that. And I think because ETH isn't trying to be a currency, it's trying to be like, well, Ethereum, the network is going to be a, a global settlement layer. And if, if Bitcoin is trying to do the same thing, then I think ETH has a better chance of doing it um, in a scaled fashion, cheaper, faster like more apps being built on it so that you can actually settle stuff rather than just the native asset. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I would say that it's going to be an interesting experiment for sure. Not sure how much we'll see people use it. They're using it for remittances, which is fair enough. <clears throat> but it is like a digital gold, effectively. And gold was never really good as a uh, medium of exchange, like you can't, you shouldn't really be going to buy your your chocolate bars with gold. Um, in the same way, I think Bitcoin. Yeah, I can't imagine people buying their McDonald's with Bitcoin in El Salvador just because they have the option to. Because the whole point of it is you hold on to it. Um, you hold on to it. More people come along, they also hold on to it. The price goes up. So <clears throat> if it's being used as a currency, like what's the point in that? I'm not really sure. Uh, will it even be a good currency? No, I don't think so okay, we're using it as a settlement layer, fine, if you're going to do that, I I think that Ethereum is actually going to make a better settlement layer. It's going to be more secure. It's going to have better scalability, um, throughput, uh, and it's just as decentralized. So that uh, summarizes my my thoughts on that. Yeah, I... So, in my mind, right? Okay, like, it's not going to be used for... Uh, daily purchases and I would say that El Salvador adopting Bitcoin is not really about the people of El Salvador it's about government right like a lot of these countries Central America uh, South America Southeast Asia uh, basically majority of the world is dependent on United States and the US dollar right and holding a Bitcoin as a government accepting taxes in Bitcoin, denominating Bitcoin, and so on and so forth, that breaks the ability of United States to, like, control these countries through, uh, through dollars. And I think that is the narrative. And I think that is something that Bitcoin is better positioned to do than than ETH. Um, and and I think it's a it's a massive use case in my mind. Yeah, I agree with that. I think as a as a first way to opt out, and that's what Bitcoin is. It's, it's a trade against the monetary policies that we're seeing enacted around the world. And the reason that it works so well and has worked so well since two thousand eight is that as long as money keeps getting printed, then it's a way to opt out. You know, it's the Bitcoin life raft. Um, that that is the trade. It's a one trade. 
and as long as it continues to work in that way then then bitcoin will be useful for that um i mean we've seen iran start to use bitcoin for pricing their imports and exports so yeah you're totally right like it's, it's a way for these countries these governments um to get away from the control of the US dollar and, and their own currencies, like just totally devaluing against the dollar and not being able to like keep up with that. So it, it will be interesting to see how much of it the government in El Salvador stockpiles. And it's going to be really interesting to see if the rest of South America reacts. Because if we go to like Michael Saylor's view on all of this, he's like, any way that you can get rid of fiat or or borrow fiat to like buy more bitcoin that's what you want to be doing so he's saying like as a, as a business it's only logical to do that because if bitcoin goes up in price all of your um liabilities get cheaper and as a business you're more competitive against your competitors so the game theory starts to play out to where if the trade goes in the right direction it kind of exponentially compounds um, and as a business or a government, you like get a competitive advantage effectively, and then everybody else is forced to join in, lest they are lest they be like completely left in the dust. So um, that for me is is the one piece of this that I'm going to be paying like the closest attention to because I think the game theory of all of this stuff that like the idea of crypto, the way that it works, uh, is what gives me a lot of conviction. Like I think it's inevitable in one form or or another. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now the idea is out there that that crypto will, you know, it will become ubiquitous in the next decade. Um, but if if that doesn't start to play out here and and it all just goes to shit, then uh, yeah, I'll be selling. Like, I'll be hitting the the max button on Uniswap as quickly as I can because I think that's where it all falls apart. Yeah, I think, I think the geopolitical nature of El Salvador kind of move is is really hard to overstate, right? Like we've seen this over um, decades and decades after the uh, Second World War that America and its uh, friends at the IMF and, and the World Bank and these these other uh, institutions. Um, what they did, right, is they financed the world, right? And they especially financed the emerging countries. They financed uh, massive infrastructure projects. Um, and they did that through kind of loans, right? And because U.S. has the ability to print uh, the dollars, it doesn't necessarily need those countries to repay those loans and that's been the strategy right the strategy has been let's give these guys so much money that they cannot repay it um the the debt is us dollar denominated right which means that they have to price their goods in dollars and they have to always keep the reserves in dollars and they have to buy dollar denominated assets like treasuries right and as they sort of run out of money because they have too much debt, right? We're going to come in and we're going to buy their natural assets. And over, over the last 50 years, it's been, it's been oil, right? It's been fossil fuels. And you see this um, repeat, right, in country after country after country across Southeast Asia, across the Middle East, across South and Central America. And the fact that these countries can now choose to actually buy Bitcoin, right, with their dollar-denominated income, and as Bitcoin appreciates, um, their liabilities um, decrease. Right, and and so that's almost like their only way at a at a sovereign level to actually get from underneath this burden of debt that the U.S. and has kind of put them under. So, like the geopolitical implications of this are massive, and I think 
El Salvador opened the doors, but uh, I think this sort of this is going to continue because for a lot of these countries, right? Like they don't really have anything to lose. Like what's the worst case outcome? Oh, like it's another default, right? Like we've seen so many defaults in South and Central America um, that it's really not new. It really doesn't doesn't scare anyone. Um, and and if you're a politician uh, in one of those countries, uh, you know you you you'll probably take your chances. So. I definitely see this move um, kind of being picked up by by other countries and and other governments. I think it's a yeah. I think it, it has massive kind of geopolitical implications. Mm, well, that's going to be exciting to watch. Um, it's it's kind of interesting because we saw in the stock market after at the start of the year some excitement around micro strategy, rougher. Tesla, whoever it might be, adding Bitcoin to their balance sheet. That kind of stuff seems to have um, slowed right up now to the point where we don't really hear anything more about it. And I wonder if a similar thing will happen with um, countries adopting Bitcoin. And the other thought that I've been having, uh, and this is with a huge caveat because like, I don't even know what I'm having for dinner the same day, let alone be able to like predict geopolitical like geopolitical outcomes in the next 10 years but what happens if like you say southeast asia maybe middle eastern countries south america um countries that have suffered for a long time at the hand of the us dollar start to opt out via bitcoin but then we've already started to see inklings of the us government like even using um usdc uh to settle, uh, not to settle, to to send um, transactions, to send money, to get dollars into the hands of like frontline workers in Venezuela when uh, Maduro was like blocking basically any uh, any bank transfers into the country, right? So almost by by proxy, they've kind of given it the green light. So what if on Ethereum, in a few years' time, we're settling trillions of actual like dollar stable coins then that makes uh, the network security for the ethereum network like of literally natural uh, national importance for um like a matter of national security for, for the us so i wonder if we're going to see a divide along the lines of geographical boundaries between ethereum and countries and bitcoin countries and this, if I put this on Twitter, this, I'm sure this would stir up some like absolute shit fighting. But I don't know. It's just a thought I've been having um, that of one way that this could go because of the because of the way that we're seeing this sort of play out. I think you just uh, tempted to pit Bitcoin versus Ethereum um, any chance you get. I I certainly see them working together more than working against each other. I see if countries start using USDC and other stable coins for settlement, um, they'll use it for settlement, but they'll use Bitcoin as a sovereign uh, store of value, for example. Um, I do think that uh, stable coins, in particular USDC, and, and US dollar denominated stable coins in general, um, they actually help U.S. right preserve its status as uh, the global reserve currency. So that's going to be interesting to see um, because it's it sort of USDC and and a paper U.S. dollar is the same. Um, it just has different utility, and you can do more things with USDC. But it's still a U.S. dollar, right? It's backed by the uh, U.S. government printer, so uh, I, I think stablecoins great for settlement, great for transactions, but not great for um, sovereign store store value. Yep, totally agree. But it it's interesting, isn't it, that um, like you were just saying that the things that stablecoins afford and and might afford the U.S. government might just be enough to prolong the hegemony of the US dollar. 
and that, and that's what they're going to be scrambling for. So the U.S. is in this difficult position where it can't really afford to poo-poo crypto, because if they do, they'll start to see what's playing out now, where countries opt out of using the dollar through a you know a decentralized, immutable, permissionless store of value, i.e., Bitcoin. Um, so they're going to be incentivized to actually start backing uh, like digital rails, digital versions of the dollar. Um, so yeah, it's along the same lines of, of what you know how I'm thinking about it. I, I have no idea how it's going to play out. I'm not trying to bash Bitcoin, and I've got to say hats off to our audio engineer Nakamomo, who's probably been sitting there absolutely frothing to say something on this because I know he's a He's a big Bitcoin proponent, but he's also, you know, an Ethereum network uh, user and, and somebody who's like able to weigh up the merits of, of both cryptocurrencies. But um, yeah, it's going to be a, a fun decade, and uh, we're in the right uh, environment. We're in the right like workspace to be right at the forefront of, of however this plays out. <laughs> I think I don't know. Uh... If if I were to describe your position on crypto, I would definitely put you towards an ETH maxi crowd. Like not all the way there, but pretty close. So whenever you say that you're not trying to bash Bitcoin, I certainly take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> well, I guess the listeners can be the judge of that. And um I, I would I would push back against ETH Maxi, like I don't want to get a reputation for that. If something else can come along and unseat ETH or Ethereum. Um, basically, I'm a global settlement layer maxi. I think cryptocurrency or uh, crypto networks solve the, that problem. Like you can have a global settlement layer with no middleman. You can use a decentralized network. And that may or may not be Ethereum that wins through on that. But I don't think Bitcoin offers the same. I think it, it offers a, like I say, a life raft. Uh, it's a store of value. It's a bet against the monetary policy of the the West, basically. All right. Yeah, we can. You know, I can. I can argue on that as well. I think. But let's uh, let's probably wrap it up. We've been rambling on on the subject for quite a while now. Unless there's anything else that uh, that you have on on your mind, uh, maybe another interesting ETH versus Bitcoin topic that you've been pondering recently. Um. No, no. I think the Bitcoin crowd have better memes for sure. Uh, but uh, no, I think uh, I think we. Oh, you don't like ultrasound money, huh? <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I think we <laughs> we can leave that one behind. Ultrasound settlement layer. I like that. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us today. Thanks, Paul, and uh, we'll talk to you guys later. No worries. Thanks, everybody.